0: This is an oral history interview with David Rogers for the Robert J. Dole Institute of Politics at the University of Kansas. We're in David's home in Tacoma Park, Maryland. Today's Saturday, April fifth, 2008, and I'm Brian Williams. David, let's start with uh, you're getting the assignment while on the staff at the Boston Globe to come down to Washington, mm-hmm. and how that felt and how you got started.
1: Well, I came down and I had covered... City Hall for the Globe, and then after the mayor's election in '79, they sent me down to Washington to cover primarily the New England delegation. Though what happened was that everyone in the Bureau, that was the year Kennedy was running for president, so the entire Bureau was off covering Kennedy, and I was really left alone in Congress. Um, I mean, literally, they took me up this woman, Rochelle Patterson, took me up and gave me a bowl of bean soup, and in the midst of the bean soup, said, you're going to be fine, and left. So that was, my, I, was so I was very educated in Congress by the members, and I was fortunately had the Massachusetts delegation, and um, I had good people in the globe, like Marty Nolan was my bureau chief, and he would come back from the campaign and help me, but the reality was I was very much a product of, educated by the Massachusetts delegation, and then Uh, through them, you know, got to know different things. Baker was always nice to me. And it may have been, you know, that I was the paper, the cover, tip. And so people probably thought it was useful to talk to the paper, the cover, tip, because then they could say things to tip through the globe. And there's probably a little bit of that, not too much, but there was some of that. And that helped. And um, that was sort of my introduction to him.
0: Did you angle for that uh, assignment? Yeah, I wanted to
1: come to Washington. I mean, it was—I didn't. Ang- They—it was pretty much. Well, Marty Nolan was a big influence on me. He was the bureau chief, and you know, I had basically done a lot in the neighborhoods of Boston. I'd come back from Vietnam and gone back to school in in studied cities um, at Harvard, and then I'd um, I had done a lot in the neighborhoods and see desegregation with the busing, and I had. Uh, done um, City Hall for four years and to stay at City Hall after that. I really didn't have much interest in the State House. It was always like I liked City Hall, I'd done City Hall, and so Congress was available and there was an opening. and It was pretty much, I, you know, I was a good young reporter and they wanted me to go. It wasn't, it wasn't really so much angling as that was sort of the next step.
0: And when, when you started out, um, did you try to balance between coverage of the Senate and the House, or how, how did that break down? I
1: always covered both. I never believed,
0: and I've always believed,
1: wherever I've been, I've always believed you have to cover both. I did, we wrote a weekly column called New England and Washington, and um, um, that was focused on New England's delegation, But I would, I mean, I had Songus. I had a really remarkable delegation when you think about it because I had, uh, uh, Songus was there. Um, I had, uh, Kennedy was running. I never, my relations with Kennedy only came later. That was a, but you know, I had an active Connecticut delegation. Uh, Muskie was chairman of the budget committee for Maine, you know. And so this was early on, and so NGIMO was the chairman of the House Budget Committee. You know, so And the budget was a big story then, and so there were a lot of people, and then obviously the huge influence on me was appropriations, because um, Silvio Conti was the ranking Democrat, ranking Republican on House appropriations, and the ranking Democrat was Ed Bolden. they were both from Massachusetts. So I can remember... You know, one of the first stories was, remember, the Soviets went into Afghanistan, and, and um, Carter wanted to register, re- resume registration for the draft. And so that was an issue in appropriations between uh, Conti and Boland. and that was sort of one of my first stories.
0: Mm-hmm. And did you gravitate towards budget appropriations in those areas, just naturally?
1: This. Yeah, I was considered a bit of a joke. I have been considered most of my career for how I've covered appropriations. I've spent a lot of time on appropriations. I mean, I think that people now are covering appropriations that didn't cover it before. But believe me, when I first started covering Congress, there weren't many reporters covered appropriations. I think it was because we had a situation where we had, uh, uh, you know, uh, Conti and Boland and Early, and these were, you know, if you... Conti wanted you to cover him, and so if you were going to cover him, he was in all the conferences, and I'd say, well, you ought to get me in the conferences, and then he'd get me in the conferences. So, to a certain extent, I had some extra access because of these people, and I think, to a certain extent, Washington was asleep at the switch and not covering appropriations. So, anyway, that was, and I was interested in it. The budget... The. I guess because of JIMO and Muskie. But the truth was the budget used to be a huge story. You know, it isn't, you couldn't cover Congress without paying attention to the budget. I mean, it used to be literally months were consumed at the beginning of each year with the budget discussions, generally, which led to a lot of assumptions that were ignored by the Appropriations Committee. But, and that was one reason, the appropriate, as you did the budget more, you learned how important appropriations was to the actual resolution of things. And that's what I'd go to that, And then, and then it was because of the budget. you deal with people like Dole on the Finance Committee.
0: And that was um, just as a footnote here, um, the new configuration of the budget process and whatnot was only five years old, I guess, when you got that's there. That's right. And do you have any reflection on how important that 74 legislation was in terms of clarifying how, how the budget ought to be handled?
1: Well, it certainly set about it set in place a process that was was genuinely very important at that time. And there was a there was probably a, a much greater deficit consciousness at that time I remember. People really were worried about the deficit and you know, I mean, well Carter when Carter won one of my earliest stories, Carter won Iowa. And when he won Iowa, he moved to the right and decided he could balance the budget for 19... would have been the fiscal 81 budget. or He wanted to balance the budget, 80 or 81. And I can remember one afternoon, someone in O'Neill's office says, wait here, and, like, the entire cabinet walked by, and they were coming to the Hill to... or not the whole cabinet, but a lot of people from the White House because they were coming to the Hill to balance the budget. So that whole period when I first got here was this intense Carter effort to balance the budget to show he was fiscally responsible versus Kennedy and and versus Reagan coming up in the Republican ranks. Now, it didn't last very long because the... But they used to be down... we, We would have votes about how much aid to go to New York City. I mean, detailed votes. And it was all you would cover it with great seriousness, but the reality was, in the end, it was basically assumptions, planning assumptions. And you came to realize it after a while, and then you would focus more on appropriations. But one of the biggest changes in Washington in the time I've been there is that the budget process does not have the same dominance. Um, You know, what's happened is it's gotten to a point where no one wants to make the real choices, and so they avoid the budget process. I mean, but the whole tenure of Dole... Was was making some very painful choices. I mean, some would argue that one reason the Republicans lost the Senate in '86 was what they did in some of the budget process in '85
0: and '86. And just sticking to Carter here for a moment, uh, what was the fate of his effort to reduce the deficit?
1: Well, they did something. They did. They made an effort, but the problem was, like everything with the budget, you're 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 only as good as your baseline is. And the reality was with inflation and interest costs and so forth, things were slipping past him. So he had a target that if he cut, I can't remember the full number, but it wasn't a big number. It was like, certainly not in today's world, it was like 20 or 30 billion Then he could balance the budget. Do you know what I mean? And they were going to do that. Actually, one of the ironies of the situation, I believe that in that period of time, that was the Hollings... What happened in the middle of that, Cy Vance quit, left the firm, and uh, or returned to his firm. There's a famous thing where Cy Vance has returned to his firm. Anyway, so then Muskie, who'd been the budget chairman, um, became Secretary of State. So Hollings took over and was more defense-oriented as the chairman of the budget committee. So he didn't want to cut as much from defense, and he also... They played around then for the first time with this process called reconciliation where they would go back and make changes by law, you know, and, and this became a precedent that the Republicans would later use to pass tax cuts. You know, in fairness, Howard Baker did not use it with Reagan's tax cuts. He did not use the reconciliation process that way. They only used it for spending cuts. But as time went on, I think they may have used reconciliation with Tefra in which was that was, but in each case you were really trying to reduce the deficit. Bush, um, this Bush, um, clearly used reconciliation repeatedly to get tax cuts through Congress that would not have gotten through a sixty-vote margin in the Senate.
0: Most people don't understand that process and the significance of reconciliation. Uh, Can you just review it?
1: Well, the idea of reconciliation, well, let's go back. The whole term comes about, it used to be, believe it or not, you're taxing my memory a little bit, but there used to be two budget resolutions. There used to be a spring budget resolution, which you can think of as sort of a master plan for the year. Then you, Then the idea was you would do your appropriations bills and go through your legislation. And then in the fall, you would have a permanent budget resolution, ostensibly. And um, I think the idea of reconciliation was to reconcile the experience of the summer and spring with the reality where things stood in the fall. That then became a process that people, I would say, probably twisted and took it to the spring. And uh, And the idea of reconciliation was you had to make adjustments. And because you had to make adjustments... No, filibuster should not stand in the way, so you could make fixes at that point in an expeditious way, and there would not be a um, a filibuster. You could you you didn't have to get you could simple majority rule. That's the as I remember that is the birth of reconciliation. It was reconciling the experience of the summer with reality and quick decisions to fix things and move on. What's happened is, and and the Carter people did use it. What happened in this case was that we had a situation where in recent years where we've used reconciliation really not to reconcile anything, but simply to take advantage of the fact that reconciliation allows you to pass a law without a, uh, a 60 vote you know, to override cloture. So it really has... And to make reconciliation work, you have to conform to the budget. And since the budget is either five or ten years, whatever you do only conforms to that period of time. And that's why we've created this situation in Washington where we have a cliff in 2010 where all of Bush's tax cuts run out in 2010. So in a sense, he's made a devil's bargain in that he got his way, but he got his way only to this point. And at that point, they have to revisit the whole issue.
0: Um, so, do you recall your first contacts with Bob Dole? Um,
1: I don't know. It would be in.
0: I yeah. I remember.
1: I don't very precise. I think I got to know him in the budget, obviously with the tax bill. The eighty-one tax bill for me was a great education because um, they and I would. They really, Congress used to be more open in in some ways and they would have conferences and well the, 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 let's back up the real battle over the 81 tax bill was more in the House than the Senate. The Democrats still controlled the house and dull the finance the, the Senate had moved ahead with a tax bill that did you know it had some variation of what Reagan did but it had more of Reagan's structure to it. What happened in the House was there began to be a bidding war where Democrats were bidding, adding other things, particularly for oil interests, in an effort to try to win over boll-weevil conservatives who could then vote with them on less of a three-year rate cut. And what this led to was a bidding war, and and the bill grew in cost tremendously. Not that it was cheap anyway, but it was it was expensive, and um, so then this set up the conference, and I know I dealt with Dole in the spring of eighty one with the budget, and with, you know I'd get to know him some, but I think I got to know him better as we moved into the conference, and then he was the you know representing the Senate with, uh, uh, Rossintowski representing the House in the conference, and that conference was this marvelous experience, frankly, because they held it in um, Longworth in the big Ways and Means room. And um, there was this guy from Treasury, Bud Chapiton, who was, you know, really, I think he had worked in Congress, but he was a superb tax... And they would, it was almost like a tutorial on taxes. And they would sit up there, and you could always get a room. I mean, it's a big room, so you didn't have to crowd into a small room. And um, you could watch and listen, and you really learned a lot. And, uh, and he Chapiton would explain provisions and so forth, and so for a nitwit like me who had just come down less than a year before, it was a marvelous uh, education.
0: So. And <clears throat> was Dole carrying the White House message pretty much in all of that? He always had a tone of
1: sort of, Carrying a little bit of his own, a little bit of his own message. Um, I mean, it, he. I guess he was pretty loyal. I mean, it, but he was. He was. There was this issue. I'd have to go back and research. Something. There was this issue about leasing, you know, with some of the big corporations, and I think Dole Dole went after that big time in Tefra. Some of the big corporations were behind that, and it was a tax break for corporations, and it was part of the, and I think the Heritage Foundation was behind it. And Dole separated himself from that pretty early. I mean, I don't, I don't know that I can really answer. He was very involved in the oil stuff, um, because he, Kansas, an oil interest, and when they, when the Democrats introduced all this added oil stuff. The Republicans already added some, but the Democrats up the ante. Dole was very involved in that. And actually, he got—they were a little annoyed with me uh, eventually on one of those things because they had a conference. Here's an example of sort of Dole and me. The end, the very end of the tax conference was in a small room, okay, and it was primarily about the oil stuff. And Kennedy had had an oil-related amendment, which the Senate had accepted, which dealt more with windfall profits or maybe, I know, maybe spending some of the oil money on low-income fuel systems, something like that. Anyway, so I felt obliged to pursue that, and when they had the conference, um, and this shows you how, they kept a transcript of the conference, okay? And I asked to see the transcript, and Dole let me see it. And then when I quoted from portions of it, they got all upset. Dole didn't get upset, but his tax staff got upset with me. And frankly, I to this day, i never understood quite why they were upset because I thought I did everything by the book. But there was sensitivity because it showed how he and Russell Long had ignored Kennedy in the conference, okay, to, because they both had... They were just... said. Does anyone want this? No, no one wants this. And then, then of course they'd go out on the floor and say, "Well, we tried hard, but we, you know." And so I think he was a little pissed at me because of that. But uh, and they would claim later that because of me they weren't going to show the transcript. But it was sort of goofy to me because that's the whole point of having the transcript. And and you weren't the the whole issue was you weren't supposed to quote directly from the transcript because the transcript may not be perfectly accurate. And so I didn't. I just said the transcript indicates that they didn't try very hard or something like that. I didn't do some generic. I did a generic. But anyway, that was a bit of a sore point for them for a while. But not... He never was made a huge issue with it, with me, but that was sort of one of my first experiences with that side of him.
0: And how did you uh, interpret his leadership style and how he was going about being chairman of the, of the finance committee?
1: Well, he was interesting. I mean, he was he did have this sense of... He would pick different targets where he had a sense of sort of certain unfairness of things or things were excessive. I mean, he was... You know, he was always, you would argue, more identified with the... Like we talked about before, the older wing of the party that was a little more deficit conscious. You know, he's probably more... And so Reagan had come along with this, you know, 30% cut in rates. You know, it was, it was big. And... um um, you know Howard Baker had called it a riverboat gamble Then I think that Dole saw it as a riverboat gamble he went along with it, he saw where things were going I mean, I think he was he was always someone concerned about I think the thing, Dole always showed a sensitivity to fairness you know, there were times you know, that he wouldn't always live with that you know, and then you might give him a hard time but the reality was that He showed a sense of that, and I think that when um, he saw how some people profited from some of the provisions in the 81 Act, he came back after it in Tefra. And I really think you can't judge, you have to judge the two together. You know, you can't really judge, you have to do 81 and 82 together to sort of get the full picture of Bob Dole.
0: Just in general, I call it a two-act two play.
1: Yeah, I think you have to. I mean, because it, it's, it's... There was no... I mean, Robert Byrd was voting for the Reagan tax cuts. You know, it was like Reagan had won a landslide. He'd, he'd taken over the Senate. You know, these people were not going to stand in his way. And that was, frankly, one reason why Howard Baker didn't want to do it, didn't have to do reconciliation. He was smart not to, because he took advantage of the fact that he could get the majority and just get it done. And they did. And then... We had, you know, we had the economy. Eighty-two was tougher with the economy, and um, and the other thing was eighty-two was when Social Security surfaced more as an issue, and um, Dole was sensitive to that, and they had done some cuts in Graham-Latta. Um, that was the rec- that was the big uh, deficit reduction package that in 81 that included um, effective minimum benefits for social security and there was a race in Mississippi Wayne Dowdy was a special election in Mississippi and Wayne Dowdy used social security for and the Democrat Coelho saw how social security could be an issue for the Democrats in sort of April-May period of 82 and they pushed hard on it and I think Dole may have been caught off a little off guard by how powerful that turned out to be in the House elections. Tip didn't really have. After the eighty-one eighty election, Republicans controlled the Senate. The Democrats ostensibly controlled the House, but they really didn't, as a practical matter. I mean, they they were a the majority, but on any given day, on most fiscal issues, um, Reagan could get. Uh, swing votes he needed from the Southern Conservatives. And um, it wasn't until the 82 election when TIP won back a critical number of seats did that, that balance of power come back, and then TIP was much more forced.
0: What about Rostentowski's role in 81 versus 82?
1: Well, I think Rostentowski made him. He'd probably admit he made a mistake in that he went into a bidding war. And he couldn't win the bidding war against the White House because the White House wasn't going to be outbid, and um, Donald, you know, they just he couldn't win. And then in eighty in eighty two, um, um, Ross you know, worked with Dole on that. Um, you know, like all things in taxes, once you get into it, um, I think in some ways there was there was sort of a dynamic in the house where I think Ross and Tusky wanted to give in more to Dole's Teffer because he thought it was more equitable than the one that he'd been able to get out of the house to be honest and I think that I think there was some of that where there were it was like house receipts <laughs> do you know what I mean and um, I'm not sure actually I have to go back and look there was a I remember there was a blue slip problem and with with 'Cause Dole had taken initiative and uh, in terms of passing Tefra ought to go research that for you if you wanted to come back to me. But the point is in in any case there was this big conference and, and in that case I think that Rosentowski was was appreciative of some of the things Dole had done. There were some issues that would flare up, like, you know, withholding you know, withholding on interest income and banks and so forth and uh, Dole, was, Dole would take on the banks on this, and he had some pretty nasty fights on the floor, and he, was, he would just get pissed. And, uh, but, you know, he'd go out there, and he'd just go after them.
0: So would you say that uh, uh, 81 didn't reflect much of Dole's philosophy, but that by 82 he was able to affect some influence on how things came out?
1: I wouldn't want to say it didn't reflect his philosophy, but I I think that there's no question you have to look at 81 and 82 together to have a full appreciation of him, because he clearly he was a new chairman, he was implementing the new administration's policy, he was trying to do that, he certainly got involved in the oil stuff which had parochial interests on his part but I think he was trying to implement what the administration wanted by 82 um the administration was not as, quite as strong. Um, he was more established, and he could—I re- think that was more dull, you know. Mm-hmm. That was—whereas one was dull implementing Reagan, the second was dull.
0: How—you, uh, from your perspective, saw both Erda and Tefra as major battles and having great significance uh, for the country. How were these playing out uh, with the populace? How, what, what did you get the sense Massachusetts and so forth were, were they aware that this was as important as it was?
1: I think pretty people were pretty aware, um, but I think Social Security eventually, probably with voters, took on more and the economy took on more meaning than what the Senate and House had done in terms of deficit reduction. But I, I think in terms of it was a serious deficit reduction effort.
0: And Remind me of where David Stockman and the what was he taken to? It wasn't the out. The woodshed. The woodshed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, where was that all coming into this? Because I think that's what it, what I remember more than anything else of that period.
1: Well, I think there was the. I'd have to go. Map it out. I hadn't. I'm sorry. I don't. I can't do that. Totally. But I know there was the period where we had the budget, and then you know Stockman always had the magic asterisk. And then in sort of eighty two, as deficits, you know, there was a new budget, and people saw the deficits, and they were really larger than expected, then or larger than promised. And then, you know, Stockman did the famous interview about, you know, he talked about the inability to control spending, and that's what that's what led to the sort of Domenici-Dole alliance and so forth.
0: Right. right. So. Should we talk next about social security, or should we go on to the eighty four deficit reduction efforts? you mean with Graham Rudman and yeah. stuff yeah. um
1: I mean, I think that basically what people forget is is how <clears throat> people particularly given where we are today, you know where we have a war and you know you know we have these large deficits that people don't fully. Grasp how much people were self-conscious about the deficit at that time and would, you know, really,
0: <coughs>
1: really um, focus on it, you know, politically, in the, particularly in the, in the Senate, where you had this sort of mix of people like Dole and Domenici and others who were quite conscious of the whole thing. I mean, I can remember when uh, Graham and Rudman... I got invited, this is a famous, this is, you'll like this one. I don't, I'll have to go back, and I could go back and check this date, but I was one of the first people to write about Grant Rudman, and again, it was because I was from New England. Rudman invited me to some lunch, or some breakfast they had. And I guess by that point, that would have been 84, right? And by that point, I had, I was at the Journal, I was no longer at the Globe, but Rudman knew me. And, um... Graham and Rudman had this little, you know, donuts and coffee thing, and they wanted to talk about this incredibly Rube Goldberg thing about to control the deficit, right? And I remember coming back, and I said, boy, this is is the most wild-ass idea, but people are so frustrated, and they were, maybe they would do this. And I wrote a story that essentially to that effect for the Wall Street Journal. It was pretty short, but it was funny like that. Anyway, Hollings wasn't there. Okay, Hollings signed on later. Well, I would never call it. Um, do you want me to stop? Yeah, we can't. We can. yeah. Okay. Um. Well, Rudman, Rudman had this breakfast, and Hollings didn't come. And then Hollings signed on, and so it became called Graham Rudman Hollings, right? I would never call it Graham Rudman Hollings, because Hollings wasn't at the <laughs> And I wasn't going to waste space in the Wall Street Journal, you know, for all these names. You know, it just made the lead terribly complicated to write. And this used to, Hollings at first complained about this. And then later they, they said that I should have been given, they were worried I would have given a corporate contribution to them because they were so embarrassed. Remember later he wanted a divorce from Grand Reverend Hollings and so forth. And the, the Wall Street Journal had covered this entire period of time never mentioning no, I didn't mention he supported it, but I never called a graham rodman Holland. Anyway, they used to joke that they could never decide whether I'd done them an immense favor, you know, by not associating. But anyway, I did... There was that, and then... Um, I guess... Um, but what more did you want to know about that, Graham-Rodman?
0: Well, what was the real objection to it, or why was it such a Rube Goldberg? Oh, well, it so was...
1: I mean, it basically set up a situation where if you didn't meet these targets, you would... I mean, everyone kept thinking of what can make us do the right thing. You know, it's like, we can't do the right thing, so find a machine that will make us do the right thing. And then they would create a machine, and everyone would say, my God, this machine will be terrible. And that was sort of what Graham Rodman Hollings was. It did... It, it, it introduced more the concept of sequestration, you know, sort of across-the-board cut... And it also probably, in some ways, encouraged what became later the sort of pay-go approach. I think, in fairness, it had that effect. But generally, it was it forced the Republicans into some situations where they ended up adopting some very tight budgets in the Senate that touched on Social Security or Medicare and um, proved to be, you know, caused huge divisions with the House and the House Republicans. And this is where you started to see, particularly, if you started to think broadly, you can sort of think of '81 and '82 sort of Dole on tax policy, you know, together. But then, as Dole see by Dole became majority leader in '84, right after after well, Baker '85, yeah, yeah. so he walked into this problem, and there was this growing frustration. And then, what do we do? And do we stick? Do we stick with? You know, do we stick with our guns and reduce the deficit? Well, oh, my God, we got to stick with our guns and reduce the deficit, and we'll wheel, what was it Pete Wilson go wheeled in on the gurney and all this kind of stuff? And by God, we passed this thing. And, and meanwhile, Trent Lott saying, nah, 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 forget it, we're not doing this. You know, we're just not doing this. And the Democrats in the House weren't keen on it. And so
0: it sort of blew up. Why would it Trent Lott be against it? And it's a little bit easier, I think, to see how the Democrats. Well, Trent
1: Lott was identified with the Jack Kemp... I mean, the Jack Kemp believed that you, you didn't... Uh, I mean, I actually looked at a story in 85 on this where the tensions... Well, first of all, they knew Reagan was now in his second term, and it was, that was ending. Um, secondly, they were, there was the Jack Kemp school of thought, and that was always the supply-side view. And you had the other people who weren't sure of that. And then you had, In um, <clears throat> Lop was identified with Jack Kemp. And Gingrich was beginning to come into his own a little bit. And there was Bob Michael, who was the Republican leader, was more akin to uh, Dole. But uh, actually, I came across this quote, I could get you, but where Bob Michael said to me, you know, the decisions are getting tougher and tougher. And um, and he said, but it doesn't take any institutional fortitude to be for tax cuts. He says, Judas Priest, everyone's for that, you know. So, so you had that, but you had that school. I mean, the people were up against some tough decisions at that point, and they didn't want to make them. And they really weren't made <clears throat> until, and that, you know, that theme runs through the whole thing, you know, because then you have Bush 1, you know, read my lips, no new taxes. That whole school, and then, of course, he runs into problems, and he makes the deal with Darman, and then he loses the election. I mean, the reality is everyone says Congress should do the right thing, but anyone who really tries to deal with a deficit pays a terrible price. I mean, Dole paid a price in 86, you could argue, um, though I, you could argue time was running out on that Republican majority. Anyway, but that helped contribute to it. Um, Bush won, paid a price for what he did in 90 and 92, and Clinton lost the Congress after what he did in 94. I mean, you don't really gain a lot of votes by uh, addressing the deficit.
0: How important is the uh, defense uh, budget in all of this?
1: Well, it was huge in Reagan. I mean, Reagan... Hatfield used to brag... Hatfield was the chairman of the Senate Appropriations Committee, was a matter of great pride to Hatfield that he never spent more than Reagan asked. He just spent it on different things. Reagan asked so much for defense that Hatfield could fund everything else in appropriations and have a total budget authority that was less than Reagan. So while they were shifting, they would shift money around every year, but um, he, uh, you know, they asked, I mean, for years, I think the I had to research this when I was doing some stuff on the Iraq War, but the Weinberger, one of the Weinberger budgets, you know, one of those years is one of the highest in terms of real dollars, so it really had, you know, when you think of Vietnam, Weinberger, and now Iraq. So, no, the defense was big, Uh, and Dole, there was a pretty broad group of moderate Republicans who were willing to, um, you know, um you know do um to, to to make cuts from defense you had in the republican party you had votes this is there was Dolan's, there was one set of elections i can get you the dates but dolan simpson won but chafee lost you could see and um Domenici lost to Nichols in lower elections. You could start to see the young people coming up. The Chafee lost to Cochran, whom you wouldn't really think of as a conservative, but Cochrane was being backed by the conservatives. And I think that was a particularly painful um, thing for Dole. Um, because... And I think Dole may have gone along with it. and I don't know. It would be something I, I've never... I don't know that I've ever fully asked, or gotten a straight answer from him on that. But Chafee lost narrowly, and I'm not sure that Dole helped
0: him. And when you say lost, you're saying lost a chairmanship? No, or lost no, the... lost a, a, a caucus position. Um, I,
1: I, I do. I can find it for you. But the the there was in this period of time there was a set of elections in Republican. Structure, where um, um, do you want me to go look for it? Or? No, that's okay. right. we can add but it later. There on. was a there was a um, <clears throat> set. Of, I think it's in this it's in this '80s period. But I know uh, Chafee lost, and uh, and he'd been a longtime supporter of Dole's, you know, on the finance committee and
0: so forth. Talk about some of the other players. And
1: Chafee backed Dole for leader. And he'd gone to law school with Stevens, but he backed off. So,
0: that was quite an election, and
1: uh, that was a fascinating election. I was very proud of my that the everyone was, the press was off on theories about McClure and uh, I don't know the you. There was a bunch of people, and I remember people thinking McClure was going to win and get past this and all that. Stevens, Lugar. <laughs> Right, and I always bet on Stevens versus Mm -hmm. Dole. Mm -hmm. We did a piece on that that held up quite well. I mean, and they only lost, he only lost by one vote. And, you know, that was the whole, allegedly the whole Helms thing. You know, Helms delivered for Dole in return for PACO doing something on cigarette taxes.
0: I don't think anyone has told me that.
1: Oh, well, one of the subplots... Anytime, like, Dole, if Dole runs for leader, he vacates the chairmanship, so Packwood gets to be chairman, right? So people always, there's always that kind of element, just as, a, so Dole, behind, behind Dole were a set of pretty smart, savvy finance committee people. And in fairness to Stevens, in fairness to Chafee, while I think, I think Stevens was disappointed Chafee didn't support him Chafee's self-interest low, rose more with the Finance Chairman Dole succeeding. Packwood then was going to be in line to be Finance Chairman, and I think that Stevens had counted on Helms helping him. And in the end, Helms voted. The perception is that Helms voted with Dole, and the the rumor, the story was always that Packwood had made a deal with Dole with with sorry. Packwood had made a deal with Helms that he would help protect his tobacco and cigarette taxes in return for Helms putting Dole over the top. Mm-hmm. I know Stevens was, Stevens thought, Stevens felt very betrayed at the end, and I think that was where the, he felt the betrayal the most.
0: And how do you think Stevens and, and Dole's relationship suffered, and for how long?
1: I don't really know fully. I mean, I've known both of them pretty well over the years. I think that Stevens, I mean, Stevens had been the whip. You have to remember, he was the whip. He was next in line. And basically, Dole was coming in and taking it away from him. And Dole was more the outside player, you could argue. He'd run, been vice presidential candidate. He'd run for, I'm not quite sure how many times. He ran for president in 80-some. He ran in '80. and he ran again, obviously, in 96. But um, Dole, um, he... So Stevens was more the institutional guy, and it is a kind of institutional job, and here comes this guy who everyone said was just wanted to be majority leader so he could run for president again. And I think that Stevens resented some of that, and I'm sure there was some... I don't know, truthfully, their whole relationship. I mean, Stevens is not someone who forgets, but I've always found him to be... Um, I always thought Stevens was a more decent person and people gave him credit, and he, um, that was one reason I focused on him as the real guy who could be a threat to Dole getting it. The popular theory was the McClures of the world or someone would take away the conservatives, and, and those people disappeared very quickly in that race. It was really two pros. That really was a race between two complete pros, and that's why it had to be close in the end because they were such good
0: pros. In that era, who were some of the other pros? In the Senate? Mm-hmm.
1: Um, well, Domenici was a force, um, um you know, Luger was a force, there was this odd little, backwood was a force, I mean, before he turned out to be obviously flawed, but he was definitely a force, um. I guess I remember the it's hard to remember now, but I think there was one point where the conservatives wanted Luger to oust Packwood, you know, because Packwood was considered too liberal or something. It was, you know, these weird little. Obama once said to me when he first came, he said that the Senate was like the Peloponnesian Wars. It reminded him, and there's a certain element of that that it goes on all the time. But um, I'd say. Well, there were individual, st- you know, among the overall. I mean, Hatfield was a tremendously talented appropriations chairman. Um, I always had a weak spot for Chafee. I thought he was he worked hard and he was a professional. Uh, Simpson and Danforth were powers. They were they could be nastier than people like to think they were. Um you know, on the Democratic side, uh, you know, Kennedy was back into his, you know, coming back into himself. And there's, you know, he's he's just a tremendous legislator.
0: Um, <clears throat> the the um, Social Security, the Greenspan Commission and all, should that be looked upon mm. as just a very temporary correction, or does it really have legs and was a major Shift, how, how do you evaluate it?
1: Shift in terms of policy? On, mm-hmm. um, I'm probably not as good on that as I ought to be. Um, I remember covering some of it, but other people covered it more for the Globe. I think that, that while there was a sort of relief that they had figured something out, I think they increased the payroll tax quite a bit and they moved the retirement age up some. And I think that a lot of people felt that was setting a pattern that was going to be more trouble down the road. But to be honest, there was another report, the economic reporter at the Globe, I remember, covered it more than I did. So, I watched it because O'Neill was involved and Dole was involved, but it was one of those things where
0: I'm not as good a source for you. Right. Um, So, what more is there to say about uh, budget appropriations in the second Reagan term? Or
1: have we it? Um, Well, a lot of the second Reagan term for me was the re contra See, I went off onto that. I'd done the story on the mining of the harbors, and so I was very involved in Central America coverage. So the truth is I sort of went off in 86, 87 into that world, so I didn't really... You know, I was covering... I mean, what I can, the things that I was interested in at that point were more like the emerging funding for the Afghan war and, you know, I was breaking stories on that and that kind of stuff. I wasn't really trying to do the sort of big macro picture stuff
0: as much. Well, since we're taking a chronological approach to things right? Here, then, um, how did you come by the bombing of the harbor story? Mining of the harbor?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, well, I can't tell you all of it, but um, the, the the trigger point was that Goldwater said something on the floor one night, and I heard him. It used to be... See, the Senate wasn't televised, and um, I don't know when it started to be televised, but in any case, I was in the room, and used to go in more in the room and watch, and I was there, and Goldwater... someone handed something to Goldwater and he read some of it out loud. And I realized the significance of it and I chased it and then I talked to, I had my own sources in the intelligence community and I worked it very hard um, beginning that night for about 24 hours. We had a situation, I think it was like a Wednesday night, and if I was going to write, I had to write by Thursday night because we didn't have a paper Saturday and Sunday. And so I wrote as best I could uh, a story. I worked at that, and basically that was the story. I mean, Goldwater didn't say everything explicit. He said something that I heard, like we're more involved than we know or something, and um, was sort of generic like that. And then the next day, they had taken it out of the record. And so I knew I knew what I'd heard, and I knew what was in the record. And so I chased it.
0: Right. And talk about that whole period and, and the outcomes. And
1: well, that, I mean, the truth is that had a huge impact because um, what happened was that our story ran on a Friday, and the Times sort of did a back-of-the-hand thing Saturday or something, but then they did a really big piece, as only they could do on Sunday. And that set it, you know, then the whole world knew. The journal would put it on, like, page A17 or something. When I retired, when they bought me out, they did a mock front page, and they put it on page one for the first. That was my agreement with them. Anyway, but it was not... It got a lot of attention. I mean, in fairness, I never was that upset. I was just glad it was right glad it got in the paper do you know what I mean looking back it certainly should have been on more in the front of the paper and they were embarrassed they didn't do it and then we I don't know whether you know this story the the editorial page wrote an editorial later attacking the House committee for leaking it to the Washington Post and then they had to write a correction that it had actually broken in their own newspaper and this you know we had this division between the news and the editorial page and This was a source. There's one reason they all hated me at the editorial page for so many years. But anyway, Kennedy knew me from the Globe, and he seized on it in the caucus and offered this motion to condemn the mining of the harbors. And um, it got a big vote, obviously, and the House then voted on it. And what it did, the real significance of the mining story was it fractured the bipartisan support in the Senate. Moynihan was embarrassed uh, in a way who had supported it was no longer going to support the contra money and so that 's when they cut off the contra money and the house had previously voted, but they could never get the Senate at that point that in the 84 defense bill it didn 't get funded and so that 's ushered in iran contra that 's the significance of that
0: so the the uh, arms uh, contract that that uh, that came up before or after the, the mining was just give me the Oh, sequence. no no, the mining
1: was the mine there was not we were funding this we were ostensibly trying to help El Salvador by using the Contras to cut off armed shipments into El Salvador. Obviously we were using the ContraS to overthrow the government in Nicaragua, as it turned out. And then when we were mining the harbors, it was obvious what we were doing. So that's what set that off. Then once the funding was cut off, North had to go find alternative money, and that all followed from that. Then they went to the Saudis, and then they went to the Iran-Contra.
0: And did you cover that aspect of the story? Yeah,
1: right? yeah, yeah. Miss- That's what I'm trying to say. It was when, when you start to ask me about the budget period in the sort of 86, 87, 88 period, I, I am not as good because I was doing, I was focused on Iran-Contra, the Afghanistan operation, And then in 88, they had me do the presidential campaign.
0: Um, I've asked a number of of, uh, Dole's colleagues about Iran-Contra, and uh, in particular, I'm curious about Bush's knowledge and Uh so forth. And I always get steered away. They they don't want to deal with it or express any sense of culpability and, and so forth and so on. Now, you covered it very closely. Can you talk about that at all I mean how
1: much George the vice president right. would have known right. well there was a lot of attention on um, his dealings with Felix Rodriguez and it's you know and then there are people feel that Felix Rodriguez uh, was seeing Bush at different points and um, <clears throat> people feel Bush should have been more aware of what Felix Rodriguez was doing you know I think that would be, I'd, I'd really prefer to go over things, but that was the big point. I remember I did some stories, there were some, I got some documents declassified regarding Felix Rodriguez and his conversations with George Bush, like he visited the White House and this kind of stuff. So people kept saying, how could Bush not know what Felix Rodriguez was up to? But Felix Rodriguez would always say I didn't tell him and that kind of stuff.
0: I've read the uh, diaries' entries of uh, Reagan's during that period, and, of course, he at least feigns. More. Oh, you mean
1: whether Reagan would have told Bush stuff?
0: Right, or, or, or even what about your assessment of Reagan's uh, knowledge of what was going on? Or do you believe, as the diaries tend to indicate, that he was just did, really didn't know until people started coming to him as a result of it becoming known?
1: Um. You know, I never really, the Bush part with Rodriguez, I pursued more than what Reagan or I didn't really care, to be honest. You know, no one was going to impeach him. And, for, and as far as I was concerned, it went all the way up, and they all knew something. I mean, it wasn't, you know, I don't know whether he, he certainly knew about the Iran weapon sales. And that itself, some people would say, is as big a problem as giving the money to the Contras. Whether he fully knew the prophets were going to the Contras, I don't know whether they could have kept that from him. So tell me, uh, talk about the 88 campaign then. I didn't, I'm not as good. I mean, I did some with Dole, but I know they sent me out, but it was pretty structured with the, I was, the truth is I finished 87 and they had me do gore. You know, I did more of gore. And so I did get thrown out with Dole some, uh, but then he lost, you know. And so I didn't really, I don't think I'm a great source for that period of time.
0: What about in general, that, that campaign, and how, how, did, how did you see it?
1: Uh... Oh, well, I ended up doing quite a bit. I worked with a fellow, David Sherman, and we were pretty much the two leg guys with, uh, um, I did primarily to, to, to caucus, you know, and the journal, Hunt was running the Bureau then, and he was is a very good political mind, and he's very much a, you know, patent. You know, you will do this, you will do that, and that's what you did. And you, when you got the assignment, then you would try to do it as imaginatively as you could, but he was sort of tactically running things, and he used us to do, um, you know, it's like everything with campaigns. There's a funny story where... Um, this won't really help you with Dole, but there was like, remember in 84, the big issue was picking Ferraro? You know, that became the issue. So then in 88, 88, there was like two big issues. One was character. Remember, we went through Gary Hart and all that, so we had to really do character. So the journal set off to define the character of each candidate as only we could in four takes or five takes, you know, like 1,200 words. So yours truly was assigned to Al Gore, and he used to complain, "Why did I get you?" You know, I did a long piece on him, and I looked back at his military record and all this kind of stuff. And then, as things, and then I went through Gore, and I did a lot in the South and Mississippi, and um, but then, oh, I know. Then when it became clear it was Dukakis, then the issue became. I basically did Gore up to New York, and then, you know, everything fell apart, and that was over with. And I had Congress stuff I'd have to go back to, you know. So then when Dukakis was, the big issue was, this was, I remember Hunt said that you will, I want to be able to do a story that the day he picks his vice president, we know who it is and all the thought process that led to it. Do you know what I mean? Right. So I said, this is insane asylum, you know. And I, I referred to it. And so he got all upset with me. But we ended up, Sherman and I did it, and And um, we used to call—I used to call it Operation Village Seal. It was an operation I was with in Vietnam where we did a Village Seal. It was a terrible operation. It was just a totally fucked-up operation. I used to call this operation. This was the joke, Sherman, and I. had. sometimes we refer to Operation Village Seal. So, but in terms of Dole, you know, once he—what did he—he lost? He won Iowa. He lost New Hampshire, and then he lost South Carolina. Right? It fell apart pretty quickly for him.
0: But I've heard many people say that that was really his year, both in terms of his career, his energy, his his, uh, fire in the belly, and so forth, and that uh, 96 was just sort of an afterthought.
1: I think that's probably right. I don't know that I would disagree with that. I mean, I think that, again, again, some could argue the 90, uh, that... 2000 was McCain's year you know um, McCain isn't quite the same candidate as he was in 2000 and uh, I think the problem with Dole was he um, he was up against the sitting vice president and he was uh, um, probably too identified with uh, some of the you know the old school deficit stuff that hurt him, and um, I remember going out. I guess he was always very—you know—he'd always see me if he saw me on the stump. He was always very cheerful and friendly. And, and there were, I remember going up, and I do—I do think there was this—this—this—this this, this, this thing I say about him: where I wouldn't want it to. Like if everyone in Washington got up and said, "We love you, Bob," he would be one person. And then when things turn against him and he gets angry, he's another person. And I remember one day, I think maybe he'd won in Iowa and we were up in New Hampshire or something. I went, Hunt said, go on up and do some piece on him. But it was, see, that said, I'm really not a good, like Kit was with him or I don't know which, she was with him in 96. Did she go with him in 88? Okay. She was with him, you know, I was sort of in and out, you know. but um it, that was sort of um, he was like great that day he was on his he was funny he was witty people were appealing you know he was just generous and clever and and he could be that um and i guess it must have been I did go back out to Kansas and do a piece on him. It must have been before that. And that's when we went out and, you know, we went in the backyard. And, um, you know, it's interesting. I said to you before, I mean, when we were talking, it is, it is somewhat relevant, I won't go off too long, but in 85, when, 10 years after the choppers went off the roof, the journal said, why don't you go pick two guys who were in public life who were in the war and write about them. So, you know, it's like classic journalism, pick a Republican, pick a Democrat. So I picked Bob Carey, who was then governor of Nebraska, and John McCain, who was like a second-term congressman. But to get them to talk, I had to talk. <clears throat> so I'd fly out to see, I flew out to see Bob Carey. We spent a fairly painful, nice weekend together. I Flew out, to saw John McCain. To get him to talk with to do the same thing. Because for me to, for him to talk, I had to tell him what it'd been like for me. That was the deal. That's what they wanted. They didn't, it wasn't quid pro quo, but it was like it was a sort of like you couldn't ask someone to talk about something painful without people want to talk about something painful. Dole and I think in that same not that period, but subsequently, I went out and saw Dole. But to get him to talk about that, you know, he didn't want to talk about it. And it's, it's, it's changed very much, you know, because when he ran in 96, you know, it's all they talked about. And when McCain ran in 2000, he would talk about it more and he talks about it now, but McCain didn't want to talk, they didn't want to talk then. And my relationship with McCain and Kerry goes back to that. And I remember with Dole, I wanted not to be too prying, but he did open up some. We went in the backyard and he showed me the thing. And you could sort of see the miserableness of it, you know, coming back and trying to exercise everything and, you know. But the point is, in the 80 campaign, I'm going to bet he didn't talk that much about it. You know, whereas in 96 he did. And, it may, and I think it's something these people go through as a question of how much they can open up and show themselves. You know, whereas Bush was talking about, you know, being the Navy flyer and all this, and I am that man, you know, I don't know that Dole did talk as much about that then. And I think that Dole got pinned down as... Remember, that was obviously you're lying about my record and that kind of stuff. And uh, I think that that was a problem for him.
0: Did Dole strike you as, as uh, different on, in Lawrence, Kansas than on the floor of the Senate?
1: Not really. I mean, I don't think he's like a... He's always He's always been... I think, respectful, but a little guarded with me. Um, so I didn't, it isn't like we, it's not like we really, we never, like with McCain, <clears throat> there was one point with McCain in South Carolina in 2000, one of my favorite points was, um, you know, all hell, he'd won New Hampshire, and then all hell broke loose, you know, in, in South Carolina. And um, <clears throat> we're on the bus, And it really was just a few people. It was kind of magical in a certain way. It got later, it got to be this, you know, a lot of crap and all that. But anyway, to that point it was. And he's getting off the bus. They were really, they weren't prepared to deal with the crowds. And Bush was attacking, attacking. You know, Cain's getting off the bus. We're alone on the bus for a minute before he gets off. And he turns to me and says, David, we've unleashed the dogs of war. Okay. Now, Bob Dole's never really been... That he's never said that kind of thing to me. Do you know what I mean? I mean, does he? I, does, I think he, he, I think, you know, we have a nice relationship, but it's not that he's, more, he's always had a little more reserve with me, I think.
0: I'm curious uh, about how, how you go about your craft. Um, when um, Hunt sent you up to Massachusetts, to, to, or uh, uh, New Hampshire, Hampshire, to sort of pop in and do a story. Do you come with, A, an assignment, or B, something you're, you're already looking for when you get there, or do you just sort of sounding board pick up osmosis and, and develop the story on site? It's a little
1: bit of all that. I mean, we the general structure was we had what we would call at that time a back pager, which was generally a thousand words or a little more feature on the back page of the front section. So you always went up with the target of seeing if you could come up with a back pager. I'm not quite sure what I came out of that assignment. I remember going, you were asking me about 88, and I remember being thrown out with doles some. But I, the truth is I never did much with the vice president that year. I think other people were like Jerry Seib. And um, uh, I went to the conventions and so forth. But No, you would go, and I think Hunt felt, look, you know him. Go up see what he's doing. That was sort of that thing. See what you can come up with as an idea. Um, and, you know, generally I could. Uh, but you don't... Sometimes Al would have, you know, specific, you know, he's going this way, Bush is going that way. I want you to ask him about this. get Try to get some time and ask him this. But it wasn't always that planned. Right. I mean, I read it later in 88, they threw me into quail that was because of the whole Vietnam thing you know remember well Bush picked Quayle and Quayle hadn't been in Vietnam remember that became, became a huge issue at the New Orleans convention and you know so it's like I mean the truth is there weren't many people in public life who had been in Vietnam there weren't many journalists who had been in Vietnam so oh we got a reporter who in Vietnam here you can write the story about how he didn't go to Vietnam
0: was that selection a big surprise to you well,
1: um, I didn't know enough to know. You know, did people talk about Dole as a potential? I don't think they did. By that point, there, I don't think anyone had talked about Dole being Bush's vice president. I think there was someone else in play that other people thought of, but I truth was, I wasn't focused on it.
0: Um, you've made reference obviously to your own Vietnam War experience and whatnot. Um, but when you were talking about that bond between you and, and um, Dole, that was before we started the tape. so oh. just cover that a little bit more, please.:
1: Well, I was a medic in Vietnam. Um, I was the whole story is I was a conscious objector, but they dra- they would they would draft a, there was a certain program it was called 1 AO. <clears throat> and we went to Texas, and we were trained in basic training without rifles, and then we were trained um, across the base as combat medics. And so, I not surprisingly, I ended up in Vietnam as a infantry medic, um, and I was wounded, not badly, not, that, not to the level dull, of course. And so when you came back, I came home. I was there 69, part of 70. I came home, and so... All I was trying to say is that when I first met Dole in 79, or that period of time, it was the war was still very fresh. And so the fact to meet him and his own history, you know, it was interesting to me. And I think there was probably a period of time maybe running up to going to Lawrence where he thought I wanted to talk about it more than he just wanted to talk about it. Do you know what I mean? That he was that it was probably more on my mind than it was, you know, he was willing to admit it was on his. And so, but, you know, clearly that was just something, I mean, that's one of the reasons Chafee made such an impact on me. Chafee had been in World War II and Korea, you know, and I had basically fought in a war where a lot of people of sort of Chafee's class hadn't fought. And that's not true with everyone, but it was basically true. And so to meet Chafee meant a lot to me, and Chafee and I got along, and that kind of
0: stuff. Right, right. So during the um, the first Bush administration, uh, were you back following the tax issues and whatnot, and, and, or not? Um,
1: there were others beginning to do more of the budget stuff. I was doing more of appropriations. The um, there was one point there are... I think I went off for part of a year doing an investigative piece regarding Israel and arms deals, um, and I know I know there was sort of a tense period with the journal. And I, um, hear you, want
0: me Yeah.
1: I. Well, no, I mean Bush. I covered the tower. It was the tower thing. So. Yeah, Dole was, no, that was, that could be a fairly, because the Democrats were in charge, new administration, it was the tower stuff, that was tense. Dole also had to, you know, he had to carry the water for, you know, there was this, I remember there was this sort of nasty fight over the Chinese immigrants, you know, and um, there were a couple things there where he had to sort of, um, you know, carry the ball for Bush. And um, I was doing, there was a period there where I went off to do this investigative piece on, on Israel with a guy downtown. It used to be, to be honest, it used to be Congress was more cyclical. You know, and used to be able to sort of go off the hill for like three or four months and do some investigative work and then come back and catch up. It, it's become more less of that and it's hard it was harder to separate yourself which was probably a problem for me eventually with the journal because I never left the hill and so they didn't know who I was after a while but um then I know and then I, I there was a period I 90 I went to Afghanistan for a while you know and that was partially because there was a Someone else wanted me to work for them, and then I decided I wouldn't. I'd stay with the journal, and and then um, uh, the one the journal said you can do this. One of the deals was I can have the trip overseas, so I went to Afghanistan. So, but I, my, you know, Dole was see Dole was increasingly, you know, you were having the sort of. I should get you those dates and when the precisely when the, but you remember a lot had come over to the Senate in 88, so you're starting to see in that period of time, um, you know, Bush, and then you had the Gulf War, of course, and Bush had his, you know, tensions with the right too, because of the economy and the, and the budget stuff and Darman, you know, and then. But you started to see more and more manifestations of the sort of Gindridge group in the House. And so that was, and they were openly scornful of Dole.
0: Was uh, Bush's mistake saying he wasn't going to raise taxes more than the fact that circumstances really commanded that they they raise taxes? Or how do did, how you did think about that? What do you think about that?
1: Um... I think he. Well, he clearly, by saying he wasn't going to raise taxes, helped himself get elected, and then he, um, then he raised taxes. So that was, I think, I think he just saw a set of people emerging in the House who weren't willing to tolerate that approach. You know, they wanted to cut spending more, or they they really what they really wanted to do was to not raise taxes,
0: but in your judgment, was it really necessary that taxes be raised oh. at that point?
1: Well, considering the fact that he raised taxes then, and Clinton raised taxes again in 93, 94, and that was only when we got to some more approaching balance, I guess there was an argument for doing it. What they... The real... As I remember it, and it's funny, sometimes I remember the '80s better than some of this period, so I'm sorry, and I, I can, we can do this again. I can go over my stuff. But the, my memory is that the big trade-off was that Darwin wanted to get in place in return for the taxes, some fixed agreement about spending. That's, there were paygo agreements. There was this, you know, there were agreements about caps and appropriations. And they did respect some of those, and those things became real. And I think that you Nabird know, got some pretty generous caps, people argue. But the reality is it set in place some structure that then, you know, when Clinton came in, then he did more of that. And you know, I think that I think Pago goes back to that deal, not to Clinton. Clinton kept Pago, or Rubin kept Pago. But um I think you could,
0: you know, we. I don't know about. Um, When when was Pago let go?
1: (laughs) Well, it eventually it became. I mean, it's like all these things. Once once it becomes impossible to do, then they don't do it. I mean, I think that. I think that in, in in the Clinton years, you had an environment in which you had. You know, conservative Republican. House, well, and eventually a Senate. You know, well, I guess at the same time you had the Senate because they won both in '94. You had that pressure, and you had um, an improved economy with improved revenues, so they were able to make some logical decisions, and they, you know, they would work. But the reality was, I mean, they did freedom to farm, and then the prices went to hell, and then they were doing disaster payments every year. I mean, freedom to farm cost a fortune in the end, so. And now they're in a situation where they seem to be like I did a piece this week. I mean, the whole they're doing PAYGO with the with the farm bill this year, and they're really only talking about ten billion in revenue over ten years, and they can't seem to work it out. And so I think that well, certainly PAYGO with Bush, Bush came in with a surplus, and in you know. He decided to spend the surplus on the tax cuts and then everything disappeared,
0: and then he had the war. Right. You mentioned farm uh, farm issues. Uh, what's your take on Dole and, and farm policy? Farm policy. He was well, he was a huge player.
1: I mean, he he and Foley would sometimes write the bill. And when Helms, even when Helms was chairman, Dole would go back and work it. Dole wasn't there for Freedom to Farm, really. That was, that's really more Pat Roberts' creation, which, frankly, is driven by some Kansas wheat interests, because some Kansas wheat interest had some extra loans due, and the whole system of Freedom to Farm with the extra direct payments gave them some cash when they needed it, and, and but <clears throat> Freedom to Farm was just. I don't know it's it has not worked, and it's created the system of direct payments that is now a mockery because you know we're paying five billion a year in cash to these people when they're getting good prices. You know what I mean I mean everyone the Wall Street Journal likes editorials about loan price supports. well, these loan price supports are so out of date now, given current prices. The cost of the farm bill in terms of commodities is the cash payments which owe. Go back to freedom to farm, which was a Republican creation, in which the administration, even though it wants to have reform, supports because it keeps it suits their ta- trade agenda. Anyway, but um, I saw Dole recently, and I said something about the farm bill, and he was laughing. He was laughing about the direct payments. So Dole's one of those guys who, you know, he he did he did the farm bill because it was his job, but I think at times he he thought some of it was crazy you know the subsidies and so forth um, but he was more—he was a huge influence and then of course he did a lot on food stamps you know I mean he really he was he was heart and soul part of that whole coalition at McGovern and he helped to build you know for the farm bill I mean and the farm bill now is um, two thirds of the farm bill is nutrition I mean if this farm bill is I did a story this week, but I think the farm, the nutrition element is like it'll be like 215 billion out of 300 billion dollar bill. So, here. So I think he, he. I imagine you've talked to some other people, but he was definitely. A, I didn't do the farm bills. I've gotten more interested in the farm policy probably farm policy since he left. You know, but I know I watched it, and I there was no question, particularly during the Helms. Helms was basically became chairman of agriculture, and he cared about North Carolina and tobacco. He didn't know about wheat and all that kind of stuff, and Dole would always step in there. And it's too bad he's so sick and ill, but Fowley would be a great person for you to talk to. Um, I don't know whether I, he's terribly bad at health now, but he'd be a tremendous person to talk to.
0: Um, did you get the impression that uh, Dole uh, was doing the bidding of ADM and various other uh, oh. big farm interests, or was his populism coming to the fore? I don't know. You know, is because,
1: you know, one of the things that you come across with with particularly the people who do the farm I mean... The basic idea of the government involvement is that farming is sort of an unpredictable occupation and you you should should logically have a safety net. And then you get into that safety net and you get into all these arcane things. And he could well have been. I don't know. I I just don't. It's not like I covered him, you know, at length in the 1990 farm bill. I knew it was happening I was watching it but I
0: was worrying about other things you mentioned the Tower nomination uh, anything to say about that
1: well that was a bitter thing and he was bitter um, he being dull I think he was I mean that was a, it was a particularly um, tough fight you know I think it probably was a lesson in the you know Mitchell was tough And that was part of it. And then part of it, too, was, um, you know, there was this whole drinking suggestion with Tower and all this kind of stuff. And Sam Nunn uh, was, um, you know, such a force in the Tower case. And uh, I knew him well. And I think Nunn was genuinely disturbed. Um, and then what happened with Tower, I became convinced was that the, the right wing, and particularly my newspaper, the editorial page, really didn't care about Tower in the end. They wanted to destroy None, And so they went after None with a vengeance. And that was part of the politics of that. In other words, Tower was wounded, and None was the one who had hurt him. And, uh if the theory was if you could weaken none, you would weaken someone who protected the Democrats in the South, you know. So whenever the Democrats, things were shifting, obviously, you know. By that point, Lott had won Stennis' seat. So, you know, you were closing in on a situation where there weren't going to be any Democrats left in the South soon. But anyway, there was always Sam Nunn out there and David Bourne and those kind of people who... If, some, if you were going to mount a candidacy in some place, you'd have Sam Nunn come in and help you. Well, if you could destroy Sam Nunn, you would destroy that person. And I, I was convinced they were trying to do that. Because they, they printed a... They dug up something about some drunken driving thing involving Nunn when he was a teenager. You know, and they ran it at length in the paper in the Wall Street Journal.
0: Did you have any connection with the uh, Supreme Court nominations during the, your period? Um,
1: is that Was that when uh, we had the famous... Uh, Bork? Yeah. I didn't yeah, do uh, as much
0: then, no. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what about Thomas in 91?
1: Did some then. Uh was certainly conscious of it and so forth. Um, um, you know, that was the whole you know, but Danforth was the bigger Thomas person, but Dole was, you know, I mean, I think Dole was being handed... um, If you sort of think of it in a broad sweep, that you sort of, like you said, 81 and 82 on the budget, and then you sort of... He was being handed an increasingly nasty set of choices, do you know what I mean? And also seeing around him an increasingly nasty politics you know I mean you know the. I mean this is a man that everyone would you know were what did he say the Democrats haven't started a war you know the Democratic wars or something like that I remember he had to live down that for years when he was Gerald Ford's and then he was sort of I mean Washington was changing you know it was becoming less um, you know there was this increasing nastiness and the Democrats were responding to the Republican attacks and the Demo- Democrats you know I think there were clearly people like, you know, Bill Cohen from Maine was clearly upset with Nunn's role in the, um, you know, the tower thing. You know, he thought it was excessive and that it was, you know, this was a former colleague, you know, and so forth. And what are we doing here? We're not going to let him be defense secretary. and And, of course, that had an impact because... Um, that's why Cheney became defense secretary and that's why Gindridge became whip okay so all these things were like you know like chips were if if you're sort of Bob Dole and you've you've done your Senate you know you tried you know you did everything and then you tried in 88 let's say we said 88 was the best year right for him and then what happens later it's sort of like it's muckier you know and and it's not just, gee, the Democrats are doing things that are pretty nasty. You know, they're taking down John Tower. I'm not saying John Tower should have been the defense secretary, but it was. there's no way not to look at it as sort of a nasty fight. And so you could sort of see you're, you're viewing life that way, and then you're seeing Bush, who just beat you now, having to do his tax increases, and then you're seeing this constant barrage of people who are attacking you um, you know, in the house, you know Bob Michael is on his last legs, and Gingrich is
0: coming on, and then Cheney leaves, and you have all that. Mm-hmm. So, are you suggesting that the uh, debate over Thomas's appointment was connected to the Tower uh, nomination? And it's, it's no, but I think
1: it? you. I think if you go through. No, but I think that the whole. Um... You know, the, from the rights point of view, they really saw the Bork thing, you know, that he was Borked. You know, they used that, you know, that Kennedy, the, and then and then Thomas followed, right? It sort of, it was a combination of, of events for people, these, this sort of personal politics. I mean, I guess you could, I would have to give it more thought, but if you say Thomas lost, that Tower lost because he drank, and then Bork lost because of some ideological thing, and then Thomas, you had the whole thing about the sexual you know, harassment stuff. It wasn't really what you thought you'd come to talk about.
0: What motivated uh, <clears throat> your shift from the Boston Globe to Wall Street Journal? Um,
1: well... It was sort of, I wouldn't want, the post had come to me, and I had, Marty Nolan had talked me out of that, and then when the journal came to me, the times had not come, and so I began a little bit of concern that maybe I'd boxing myself in a little bit, and I thought it might be a bit change. Hunt was keen on me, and... Um, You know I was nervous about it, but it was sort of like time to try a national paper um you know sort of a, your career and one of the people who wasn't in- hunt was really the person who wanted me to he'd seen me cover in Congress and he wanted me to come um because he was going to essentially he was had become bureau chief and he was not he wanted to, he was leaving congress himself see? so he wanted to put someone in. That was part of it. Um, And there was a. Jim Sterba was an influence. He, when I was in Vietnam, and the day we'd been in some bad fighting and I'd gotten hit, and Sterba came out. Sterba worked for the New York Times then. And um, he'd come out and met me and later looked me up, and was a sort of big force for me. And he had recently come to the journal. So they had him call me. And that was probably a factor. That was a factor for sure. I mean, it, but, um, that was why. And then the truth was, <clears throat> I grew up in New Jersey, and I probably always wanted to work for the Times. And then the Times showed some interest after I'd gone to the journal. But by that point, I felt loyal to the journal. I was supposed to go to the Times years later, um, but my son had a brain tumor and so I couldn't leave cuz the health insurance it got worse that week so that's the story of my career choices hmm. and the times has shown some interest since recently but they've got their own financial problems and I can't hold I can't count on it ever happening anymore but i'm really probably the journal was a good in some ways was a good experience in other ways was torture um, and uh, it's over with now but it was basically, you're a young reporter, the post has come to you, you turned it down, how many are you going to keep turning down or why don't you give it a try? Are you going to never grow up? I mean, and with the Globe, you didn't really know how long you could stay in Washington. I wasn't sure I wanted to go back to Boston. It was a question. Right.
0: Right. And the editorial policy of the journal didn't, didn't cause you not to take the job?
1: the truth is i didn't think about it they we had a pretty adversarial relationship later um, they were um, like i say there was a put i didn't think about it people tease me but when I, I the truth is i didn't think about it the truth was <clears throat> i thought it was time for a change try something different you know if the worst that happened you go back to the globe i knew the globe would take me back it wasn't I wasn't leaving on bad terms. They understood. You know, it was like they brought down this reporter and people wanted him and they knew they they weren't happy I was leaving, but it was a very pleasant, very supportive departure. And in fact, we had many conversations later about me coming back and it d- didn't work out. In the end, they hired Shribman to be bureau chief, who was my colleague at the Poet journal instead of me. And I don't know, I don't want to belabor that, but, you know, um, but that's all. Um, oh, the editorial page. They, I came in 83. I broke the mining of the Harvard story in early 84. They made this goof on the editorial page. Boland, who was the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, wrote this very witty letter to them. You know, which was I know who wrote it, and there were these two clever guys. One worked for Tip O'Neill, one worked for Boland, and there was this beautifully scripted short letter that goosed the editorial page in you know because the, the, they were attacking Boland all the time. saying and this was of a piece with that they were going to attack Boland for leaking, but the mining had nothing to do with it, and he had found out about it in January, and he hadn't said a word, and so he laid all this out, <clears throat> and then he he had this thing well. You know, it's inexcusable for editorial writers who don't have delays to make these errors, and perhaps someday you will rise to the level of your reporting staff. Okay, played on all the aggravations in the paper. Well, of course, the editorial page had to print this, but hated me. And then later there was something on Iran Contra where they, there was a GAO report where um, there was a, some group had planted, may have planted an op ed in the journal for the Contras. And I had to call the editorial editor on this one weekend and he was furious with me, you know, because he made some remark about how, well, we're not going to respond to every burp from GAO. So I printed it and he was, you know, upset and things like that. And like the Tower thing, G. was the columnist then and he, we, he and I got along a little later, but it really took the McCain campaign for us to talk to another. But um, I would sometimes insert in the copies you know, the ta- that I would say in my stories that none was now the target of editorialists who wanted to weaken it or something like that. And they noticed this now.
0: Did you see the uh, journal drifting rightward over the period of time you worked there, or was it pretty consistent editorially? Oh, I think they were pretty consistent right wing. I
1: mean... What happened what happens more if you cover Congress is that as the as the Ginriches took power more, they were in daily conversation with the editorial pitch. I mean there was a famous incident where something happened and Gingrich turned to an aide in front of other reporters and said, Get me John Fund, you know. And and they were they were of a piece. I think Bartley at times and Ginrich had arguments, but you really didn't know sometimes when you worked for that paper who was calling the shots, whether they were calling in the plays to the Gingrich or whether Gingrich was doing something and then they were supporting him. Hmm. So, but there was no... I don't want to make too much of it, but um, I wasn't considered one of their favorites.
0: Let's look at the, as I described it earlier, almost the last quarter of the the 20th century. Um, And since we're on the press right now, how do you see press changed, Um, 1980 to 96 and beyond?
1: Well, it changed a lot. Well, it's changed tremendously um, in terms of particularly congressional coverage. I mean, when I first came, the Senate wasn't covered by television. Okay. So, you had to go into the room, and they also had to come to the floor more, okay, to hear one another and to see one another. I guess they could may there may have been an audio where they could have heard, but the point was people did come to the floor more to listen to one another and to watch one another in exchange that When the television came, that changed. people could watch from their offices. I mean, I've always thought it was sort of amazing if you were ever in the Senate gallery where people are literally sitting outside watching on television what's happening inside. Do you know what I mean? And it's like, here you are covering the greatest democracy, you know, this incredible democracy, and they're debating on the floor, and you're not going in to watch, you're watching on television feet away. And I know why that happens, but it it is, you miss something. There's no question. I mean, it's not just the goldwater saying what they say about the mining of the harbors. It's it's how they interact. They talk to one another. You see people go over and talk to one another. There used to be much more of a self-consciousness of reporters doing that, and I think that's missing. Um, and, then, and then as television has taken over the Senate, the television correspondents have left to a certain degree. I mean, the network television, when I first came, people really did wonder what Roger Mott or Phil... Jones were going to say, and, um, you know, people would pay attention to the evening news. It's been a long time since you've watched the evening news to find out what's happening in Congress, if you're a congressional reporter. You may watch C-SPAN or or ESPN, um, uh, CNN a little bit, but the truth is you're, you're pretty current most of the time, or you're as current as they are. You know, you may all be missing it. That's changed. Um... They used to be more of a hierarchy, too. Um, I remember when I first came, like I told you, Baker's people were always kind of nice to me. So even though I was from the Globe, they would include me in little groups they had with the national reporters. And I remember Britt, and it was really a hierarchy. I mean, Britt Hume used to give me a hard time for coming. Okay, he was there for ABC, but he would say, Why are you here? You know, you shouldn't, you're not, you're a regional reporter. Anyway, we got to know one another better. I don't want to make too much of that, but that was sort of a mindset that would never happen today. What's the big thing too is you have now the growth and all. It's really late in Doles' career, but you have the growth of all these publications that cover Congress. You know, Congress Daily. You know, you have Roll Call, The Hill, now Politico to a certain degree, and um, Congress talks more to itself with these people. In other words, I mean, I was covering appropriations, like I told you I covered appropriations for years, and I was well-known for covering appropriations, but there's no question that, over time, appropriations would almost talk to itself through Congress daily, because you could put something in Congress daily that would come out at three o'clock and everyone would see it, and then you get a reaction by six o'clock when people voted or something. And that's changed, that's changed. And ironically, that's a, set of publications someone would have to do a larger study a set of publications that's financed by in some ways by special interests because a lot of the advertising is issue advocacy advertising, do you know what I mean? So people are competing for Northrop and Boeing to buy ads to compete over the tanker debate that might come up on the supplemental and that's what's happened in journalism so I think there's There's a lot more journalists covering the Hill. There are more, I mean, the halls, the the Tuesday lunches are
0: much more, that hall is packed with people. It's much more crowded. Is there still the same demand for Capitol Hill information? I mean, it's my impression that the the percentage of the evening news in the Roger Mudd days had a lot of stories emanating from or about Capitol Hill. <clears throat> now perhaps less so, or
1: yeah, no, it's like this, there's like the there's sort of a informal bargain where the networks ignore Congress, and there's this sub, and to the extent the net, the major and the Times still covers Congress, and the Post does so not that well, and um, and the Wall Street Journal, I, I mean, I wrote a lot, but they're doing less obviously, but in the L.A. Times, but um, it's almost like we'll agree not to, we're not going to cover it as much, but there's, and Congress lives with that insult because it's got all these other people covering it and they can talk to itself. But in some ways, it it it, 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 it shrinks in its standing. I mean, now we'll have a new administration and a new Congress next year and who knows, may all we'll be all hell breaking loose up there, but I think, in general, the drift has been away from a sort of broader view of things to a more, you know, this
0: sort of interlocking
1: level, another level of stuff.
0: And what about um, Dole and his generation and the changes that occurred over their period of time in in the Senate? I think we've already covered it to some degree. Right. I mean, sort of in summing up... uh, You know how how uh, politics of the trend.
1: Well, I think he was. You know, he he certainly had his feet planted firmly in the earlier period, and then he 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 actually was when you think about it. I mean, a a pretty adept person in the televised Senate. You know what I mean? I mean Harry Reid. You could argue does not do well in a televised Senate. I mean, Harry Reid is a, a very shrewd, capable person in making deals, and now he's thrust into the situation where Bush doesn't want a deal, and he's on television. Do you know what I mean? Dole um, could be witty and sarcastic, and, you know, I mean, there were times he probably didn't look good on television, but on the whole he could handle himself pretty well on television, and I think he was pretty successful in making that transition. And in fact, that may have been a smart thing for the Republicans to have picked him over Stevens. I don't know how Stevens would have done as well on television. Um, I think Dole is definitely, you know, a substance person. You know, and that's very. I mean, he. This was a man who genuinely knew farm policy and knew um, uh, tax policy, and cared about you know, some real programs. And I think, um, you know, was a skilled legislator. And he, he had a real, you know, there was a civil rights theme in his being that probably comes out of his you know his early years as Republican.
0: So. Do you think uh, 20, 30 years from now, people will still be thinking about Dole? And if so, in what way?
1: Um, I mean, I think you probably have to think of him not as a presidential, you know, I think a lot of people know about him for running for president, but I think his real legacy is in Congress. You know, he's, um, he's a, he was a very, very capable senator and he was, you know, he's someone who could make bargains and he had, you know, he, he was good. I mean, he I mean, but I think that's where his legacy is. I don't think it's really in the presidential campaigns. I mean, he, in some ways, the presidential campaigns, you could argue, became a a distraction from his... When you think of Kennedy, for example, okay, Kennedy ran for president once, really, right, and stopped. He didn't really try again. Dole kept trying, and... in. I guess I, I hadn't thought of this until now, but I guess I can make an argument that um, to some degree Dole might have surrendered some opportunities to be a legislator to, in order to run for president. I mean, Kennedy, Kennedy is a pretty awesome legislator on a whole set of issues, and you know, it would have been interesting to see Dole and he deal with immigration. Do you know? It would have been interesting to see. I mean, the, you know, they it would have been... And and and, and I think Kennedy um, just, you know, he, he moves and... Kennedy, the, the, in the Senate, there are a lot of people who get a lot of committee assignments and then act too busy to do them. You know, Leahy, for example, has an incredible number of responsibilities between appropriations and judiciary and so forth, and then he'll always sort of be looking like an agriculture, and he'll always be... Like flustered, like he can't do them all. And instead of giving up some of them, I think that Kennedy is, has, for a man of his, you know, he's really kept going, and I think the Dole, Dole was of a par with that, and, um, but Dole wanted to, Dole kept looking for the White House.
0: <clears throat> Dole as a presidential candidate was fairly flawed I, right. I would imagine you'd, you'd say can you imagine what a Dole administration would have been like
1: not really I mean I don't I'm not like I said at the beginning I don't really have a great appreciation for Dole as a presidential candidate I mean I was in and out a little bit but the man I know is what the man I saw in the hall or on the floor or in the markups and um, and I always I and it's not just because that's where I certainly what I hear about him as a presidential candidate. He was very skilled in the world I saw was in the,
0: that world. He'd run into trouble, but leapfrogging into the White House, uh, where he he could then um, regenerate some of his skills as a legislator.
1: Well, I think so, he's look. It's like Kent, It's like McCain, and McCain, but again you know, like people ask now, what are you going to get with McCain? Are you going to get the 2000 McCain? Are you going to get the 2008 McCain? I don't know. I mean, it, it may be the dull... I mean, this is a sort of question you probably have to ask Sheila Burke or someone who was closer to how he managed things. Do you know what I mean? I don't know. You know, there there is a... People who run for... For, con, for the presidency from the... Senate, they typically don't run from the House, but from commerce, but you know you'd all run from the House, but you know most people run from the Senate. They're always faulted for thinking too incrementally. you know too much the next vote. they don't have a big vision. And you know if if you were to say what would a dull presidency be like, I could see where he would be trying to do the right thing be decent, but I don't know whether he would have a larger vision, you know. I mean, this is what Obama feels Obama felt he had a vision and he should get out and do it before the Senate took it away from him maybe but I think that was always it's not that's the faulting of in that, McCain you don't really know McCain you can sort of imagine McCain a little more in an executive role than Dole, you know but that's probably because in the back of your head you're still thinking of him as a Navy officer you know or a pilot, you know. I'm going to pause here for just a second. I guess the one thing about his legacy, I do. The civil rights part is important. I do think, um, and that was he stuck with that. You know, I mean, he, and I think when I mentioned earlier about, the, you know, the African American Surgeon General, I think that might have bothered him a little bit. And, I think he had a sort of basic sense of fairness and about the civil rights, and then he was he's handled with, <clears throat> had to deal with Reagan with, um, um, when you think about it, he had to deal with Reagan on South Africa, which was a nasty business, and then he, who knows, maybe he owed his majority leadership to Jesse Helms and he had to stand up for the Voting Rights Act, you know what I mean? It was sort of, anyway, that's all I would say.
0: <clears throat> Another area that people don't talk very much about is um, dole and foreign policy. Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Um, not, I'm not as well th- thought out on that, to be honest. Um, I suppose I should think about it. I mean, he… No, I don't. I it's the sort of thing maybe you can come back and we can talk about it but I, I don't I know he was he would generally take the administration posture you know sort of anti-communist you know that kind of posture um, I think he I don't know some things with Israel as I think about but the truth is I don't really have a good grasp of him on foreign policy. I mean, I think he he tended, my impression is he tended to be with the administration on most things, but I don't truly know how much thought he was giving it. Okay. Thank you.